try and pull ourselves together and talk about some of the methodological issues uh, that hopefully, like we talked about that in the very beginning, um, but I think it's a good time to bring them together again before we go back into this text, um, because preview of coming attractions, I'm hoping that we'll blow a lot of stuff up in the next two weeks. Well, <laughs> um, you know that uh, I, I started at the outset by saying that um, that part of the challenge of dealing with this parak of the Gemara is that it it may leave out the most important thing. So I hope that next week we'll get to the thing it left out, and you'll decide whether that works or not. So it's worth talking about the methodological issues before we get there. Uh, so one of the, um, let's start by introducing a metaphor uh, that I find useful and sometimes people find comprehensible, uh, the metaphor of an Archimedean point. Um, Archimedean point is the, right, you know, those who probably know a lot better than me, right, it's the, Archimedes claims if he has a lever long enough, right, so the false multi force multiplying effect of the lever means you could move the universe. The only problem is you just, you just a point outside the universe to stand on, right, because, right, right, so that your lever is more than just you're picking up a very big stick, right. Uh, right, there has to be a fixed point that lets a lever work. So that to me is, uh, when, when I'm learning, I'm interested in trying to figure out um, what the Archimedean points are of the people I'm studying. Right, what, are the, what are the things that, whether it's an Amora or the Gemara or a Rishon, what are the things that you would really, really, really have to do a lot of work to make them give them up? Right, those are the things they start with and that they're really committed to. And basically, everything else has to fit itself into place around that starting point. Okay? Um, there's a really bad novel by Kurt Vonnegut called Cat's Cradle that has a different metaphor about throwing an orange into a crate and where the first orange goes is random, but the thesis is that every other orange is every other orange's position in the crate is determined by the first one. I'm not sure if it's true or not. I'm sure he had some scientist explaining it to him. Um, so... A lot of what I'm trying to do is to figure out what the right, what the Archimedean points are with the various positions we're studying. Right? What are the things they're committed to? What are the things that they would happily change in response to something else? What are the things that they're doing that uh, are really just way you know just inevitable once you know they've made that choice? So that's one kind of question to think about. And your Archimedean point could be a reading of a text. I know this text means that. Okay, I'll give you an example. You know, let's say we might say. Uh, that I read the first parak of Breshit and I uh, the first three parak of Breshit and I can't come out of the first three parak of Breshit believing that gender is unimportant and irrelevant. Could be lots of things you could do from that, but you're not going to convince me that gender is an accident based, right? You could read, you could say that, you could not, right? You could read your Salvatic's uh, lonely amount of faith, as I like to point out, and come to the conclusion that gender is irrelevant. Uh, because like the great mystery of lonely amount of faith is that there's no gender. In it. You can reverse the positions of the men of, of the man and woman in throughout the essay, and it makes no difference whatsoever. They have to be different, but it doesn't matter which one they are. Um, or you can have a moral value, right? Not based on the text. You could just say, "I know this is true," because right? I think you know, I know, I because I, I know religiously this is what God wants, so it must be what God right? So that's that's a so trying to figure out what your comedian points are, um, and then recognizing that different rishonim might have different Archimedean points, might have opposite Archimedean points, just like, right, you know, if, if you're doing a brisker analysis of a, of a, of a, of a Machlok of the Gemara, right, it might turn out like that ultimately there's a conceptual commitment that, right, and those conceptual commitments never meet, right, they're, right, they're, right, they're completely, they're, they're, right, they're completely opposed to each other. So that's one kind of um, question to think about, like, what are the, 
what are the things people are really committed to and what are the things that people uh, would happily change, right? If, as long as you didn't, as long as you didn't, right? they just think this is a consequence of that. Oh, that's one kind of question. Another question to think about is what are we trying to accomplish? So I was realizing, uh, you know, if I had some of my high school teaching mentors asking me the question, like, what do you want your participants to know when you're done with the shir? Do you want them to know the Gemara? Do you want them to know the Rishonim? Do you want them to know the Halacha? Uh, right, which one? Right, which one of them is? It, which one of them is it that you want them to know? Uh, so usually, you know, my answer in other contexts, and that's why the challenge is, I want people to know enough to be able to make their own decisions. Uh, but that's a hard thing to figure out what that means in the context of a shear That's a long way uh, still from Manasa for sure. Um, and even if you say we well, want to know the halacha, so I guess in there I'm a little bit more idiosyncratic. I would say there are. Um, at least three kinds of questions you could ask about what the halacha. You could say, I want to know what the halacha is. And then you're just interested in the sheets that are the halacha, right? So you're, you're not interested in the Beit Shammai, I say. You ask the guy, I want to know, I want to know what the halacha is and what it might have been. Right? So that, that, right, that, that gets you into, you know, explanations of why you study the sheets that are shalol halacha. And then you have your, whatever your theology is to get you um, to get you that value. Then you have the more radical notion, which is probably idiosyncratic to me, which is, I want to know what the halacha ought to be. Um, and then the challenge is always going to be, well, what if, what if what the halacha ought to be is not exactly the same as what the halacha is? What do you do then? Okay, that's another question to, um, to think about. And we started the sugya. Um, so the first, right, so this parak begins with the line, Sokhar uh, Napoleon and so we started by asking the question, what is this peculiarity called Um uh, Right, which, you know, a claim that there is a wrong which the law chooses not to correct. It's always a choice, right? It's not that the law, it's not, it's not a wrong the law couldn't correct, right? We're not making a claim that there's an evidentiary lack in the, in the vast majority of cases. It's a claim there is a wrong and we choose not to correct it. Um, and we could say, right, this is a methodological issue, do we think that the literary structure of a parag matters? So the next parag begins with the claim that um, and that's obviously trying to set a fundamental principle about the nature of halakha between employers and employees, right, that we fundamentally go by, by community standards. So if this parag begins, that's supposed to be the same kind of um, of a thesis statement. So what does it tell us that you know that the law chooses not to correct every wrong? That's a very powerful thing. I said my son Dochaim was you know I was talking about this with him in the car uh, about a month and a half ago. Was very very upset at the notion that Halakha would recognize wrongs and choose not to correct them. Um, so we could say right. So one of the questions of Elam Zel that we could ask is there are two ways in which Elam El Taromid is a chiddush. One is a claim that really, right, that what we're surprised is that this wrong doesn't generate money. There's a wrong, why shouldn't you get paid for it? Right? Why do we say all you, you have a right to grumble? If you have a right to grumble, so let the other person pay. And the other possibility is the notion that if that's the law, what's your right to grumble? Right? So as a finish to say that there's a, there's, there's a troll bit left over if that's the law, and the specific way that I was interested in framing that was that the way the Gemara um, addresses the question at the outset 
is by uh, right, the, Gemara has, the Gemara's first two okimtas revolve around the question of whether Sabar Vikibel prevents Taromit or not. Right, the Gemara's Havamina is that if if we claim that this was a freely arrived at contract, then there's no room for Taromit. And so the Kiddush of the Mishnah, right, uh, right, so that they're, they're not willing to say there's a case where that's really the outcome, and yet um, yet there's a Taromit left over. Right? But really, the space for is only there are cases where you might think they get paid. And nonetheless, right? And nonetheless, um, they only have they only have a tarot. And then the outcome of the government says, no, you know what? There can be a freely arrived that contract which we will enforce, and yet there's a term. Right. So I wanted to argue those are two very different ways of looking, uh, right? Looking at things, right? How, as to whether you fundamentally think the measure of all things is the autonomy of the contract, and if the contract is freely arrived at, so then that's right. That's justice. Um, or the other right, or another way around. No, that, that there are there are independent um, standards, right? Which sometimes the contract we have to hold on to the contract because that's we because we build law around contracts. But we don't think that our contract, that our conception of law and our conception of justice are the same way. The law is about freedom of contract, but justice we recognize that there can be autonomously arrived at things that are nonetheless not fair. Uh, you could have fun making that. You know, if, if you know, if you were. Uh, in the big Russian mode, you would go back to the whole question of whether Sinai it, it has to be freely arrived at or not. <laughs> um, okay. Um, there was a um, there was a counter principle which I, which um, we can argue that we can argue plays the role in, instead of Sabarikibel. And the counter principle is that work has an uh, work has some kind of objectively determinable worth, and all that really matters is that you get paid what your worth is. As opposed to right, and a contract is just is a way of approximating what the worth is really, but fundamentally, right, our, our conception of justice is you get paid what the worth of your work is, and the worth of your work is measured in some way by the market, um, right? But we, you know, we talked about the problems of trying to figure out the relationship between right, what is the what is the element that labor that labor puts in. Okay, on the other hand, we could blow this all up and say that you know what. Um, that first line that I reject your whole thesis that the first line of a of a parak is important at all, and actually this line of the Mishnah is not halacha because we paskin like a later we pa, right, later on in the Mishnah we say kolachoser and kolachoser is a very different thing than So maybe this first line of the Mishnah is just not halacha. It was a literarily useful opening line. Okay, right there you can right there you, know, there you can you can see how we. Different methodological perspectives will shape the way in which you, uh, which you frame, which you, you frame all the material. Okay. Now, in the the specific question, that um, that's one of the ways. Let's go to the back. One of the ways in which you think of, you can think about the question of what constitutes an Archimedean point is by looking at whether what choices the person rejected. Are they had other ways to go. Right? Did they have other ways to go? Did they not have other ways to go? And one of the, the one of the ways in which you can think about that is by when you look at when you look at the Gemara. So is, and the Gemara is related to the Mishnah. Is the Gemara related to the Mishnah up front, and it's just saying, okay, whatever the Mishnah means, that's it. Or is the Gemara making choices? Like I could, I know the Mishnah could mean that I'm choosing not to. Why am I choosing not to? Well, that might be because I have some kind of commitment that makes this right that makes me unwilling to do that. And one of the ways in which you look at the choices the Gemara had is by looking at the Yerushalmi. And if there's a Yerushalmi, right if, right, if you make the assumption that the Bavli has a Yerushalmi, 
which is step one, which you can make or not make, which I think is often plausible. And then the Bible goes off in a totally different direction. So then you can say, ah, well, why did the Bible go off in a different direction? It might be that we learn it's not just what the Bible believes, but what it doesn't believe. And what it doesn't believe can be very, very important. Okay, I'm giving a podcast series now, advertisements, which is called, uh, right, it, it's part of a series called Remotion, the Art of Psaac. What I'm doing is I'm tracing the phrase that Remotion finds to use as a phrase in his true it's like 75 times. It's called Lo Nitan Lehe Amer Klal. This thing cannot be said at all. So my thesis was, well, that's a really important thing to claim, right? <laughs> right, if Remotion says this can't be said at all, that must mean that there's something, right, that means that there's something really wrong about it, it's not just he disagrees. And the really interesting thing is that he says it about things that other Rishon, that Achronim say. <laughs> uh, right, you know, he says about things that right that you know that we can that lots of that contemporary postkin postkin like, and he says no, you can't even say that. Right, so my thesis is that you learn really interesting things about Rav Moshe rejecting things that he had to know other people said. He's always he's always saying in live dialogue with somebody he respects, you said that, but I think that can't be said at all. Um, There's no reason to say it unless someone has. Already that's exactly right. Right, you know, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, right, the the uh, the episode that I think is. Um, uh, coming up this week, um, which should be right, it's on. Um, it's right, it's a tshuva about. Um, she says, I'm blanking out. It, I'm blanking out. I apologize. The topic, but the but here it's like there's a total side point where Moshe says, you know, and some people say this, and you can't say that at all. Like, what is, what is he, why does he, why does he bother doing that? I saw about it's like a, a totally relevant question. The question about whether. Uh, in, in, the, in the debate about whether if somebody uh, has polio, has has polio, and so one of their their left hand is paralyzed, do they put film on the left hand, the right hand, or not at all, and with or without a bracha? And it goes into a whole tangent about um, about whether um, whether an animal whether an animal's um, organ, which is considered dried out, is non-existent or not, which is based on the Rashba. And he says, some people tried not to prove this from the Rashba, and they're totally out of mind. And I was like, weird. And I figured out that there was a huge controversy about 10 years earlier about Kashrus that, 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 that still upset him. <laughs> and so he just went, right, so he, he, he wouldn't even mention who said it. It was, it was, right, it was, it was the head of, of, of Chachmi Lublin, the issue of Chachmi Lublin. Who had said it? He won't even, but he won't even mention who said it. But he has to go out of his way to tell you don't think that. <laughs> uh, okay. So the interesting thing we have here is right. So we're looking at are there th- right? What happens if the Rishalmi says something and the Bavli ignores it? Right? What does that tell us? Okay. Um, and you know that. And the problem is, you know, because I, I try try to give you the ammunition to show I'm wrong. So this, in these two weeks, I'm going to try and show you. Ways in which that might, where you have people who hold that if the Yerushalmi said something and the Bavli doesn't mention it, that must mean the Bavli rejects it. And then in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to try and argue that's not the case at all. Um, and that actually what the Yerushalmi says is critical to understand the Bavli, even though the Bavli never mentions it. So just be aware right, that you're being forearmed about that, uh, about that argument. Um, okay. How, how aware were the Yerushalmi and the Bavli of each other? We don't know. You know. If I'm talking in a, you know, in the internal story of halacha, right, the internal story of halacha as we, right, that develops a system of authority, which is, I believe, in the Riv, uh, is that the editors of the Bavli saw the Yerushalmi, and right, and they made, right, and they made their choice. And halacha kibasroi, so we pass on the Bavli of Yerushalmi because the Bavli saw the Yerushalmi and rejected. Right. That's an internal story that generates halachic authority. We also have examples of some personalities going back and forth. 
we know that, there, that during the Amoraic period, right, there were people called the Nechute, right? So the, the Babylonian and, 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 and Palestinian yeshivot were in contact during the Amoraic period. But the Babli is not, the Babli is a product of, the, right, of at least the very end of the Amoraic period. So we don't, right, and we don't know when the Yerushalmi is finished. Right, so it's very hard to know. Uh, it's very, very hard to know. Uh, we have, you know, if, you know, I'm giving you, you know, like the, you know, the, the, the official line without, like, you know, not trying to, to, to knock it, just saying, you know, if I was just giving you the internal story of Halakha, is the Babli saw the Yerushalmi. Um, when you look at it, it's hard to believe in certain cases that this version of the Babli saw that version of the Yerushalmi. Right, that's, that, 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 I think that, I think that would be the, that would be the, story. right, certainly if the Babylonian, Babylonian issue are aware of the, uh, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not existing in hermetic isolation, but what the relationship is textually is right is is, com is complicated. But they also quote from the Arava, right? Yeah, they know things in the Palestinian Shivas, right? But let's say you know, imagine, right? Imagine that like we're here in the um, Havdil, right? We're here in Boston, and somebody says, "I heard in Wayu that," and the next year Wayu puts out a safer. Is there a necessary relationship between what I heard somebody say in yeshiva? Right? I know some of the things, not all the other things, right? They're, right? They're institutions. Like people going back and forth, you don't have, right? And, then, right? and it could be that what I heard, you know, somebody's quoting, you know, something I heard in the Rose here 45 years ago. And meanwhile, the yeshiva's moved on, right? And the actual draft is produced by people, right? You know, my generation never heard the Rose. Excuse me, yes, it's certainly not holistic, but it might be more than piecemeal. Yeah, all right, so that, right? Those are positions you have to take. Right, but I, I, I'm not taking. I'm not taking a position. I prefer to generally believe that the Bible exists in dialogue with some version of the Yerushalmi. But I don't. You know, but I, but this sugya, as framed literally, that I, you know, that's hard. That's very hard for me to say. Uh, okay. Then we tried to show. Um, tried to show last week is so. On the one hand, we can say that the Bible is reacting to the Yerushalmi, but the problem is. For that to be useful to us, we have to have a Yerushalmi. <laughs> and if the Yerushalmi itself is 100% is malleable, we can make it mean whatever we want. So then it, you can't learn anything about the Bible about rejecting it because right, we'll, just fit, we'll just fit it in. And we also have to know um, that it could be that, let's say somebody has a very strong Rabbi Chesed's commitment. Right? The Bible saw the Yerushalmi and, right, and makes his choices. But they may have a very specific version of the Yerushalmi, which is not ours. So how do we relate to them, right? That, right? So I'm, I'm trying to set up all these problems. And again, saying that for all the problems I'm going to try and set up this week and next week about it, the week, right, either late next week or, or the week after that, I'm going to try very much to argue the other way. Um, it's always a problem when, um, you know, it, when your methodology prevents you from saying the things you want to say. <laughs> what you try to do is be honest <laughs> and see if, see if it's convincing you. Okay. So very specifically, um, the Bavli opens up by, by interpreting the line of the Mishnah. Uh, the Bavli opens up by saying, Hitu cannot mean Chazru. And there are two kinds of, there are two kinds of ways in which a contract um, is not implemented in the way in which both parties understood it. One is called Chazru, where everyone agrees what the original contract is, but right, but one or the other of them is, says, right, I have altered the terms of our deal, right? This gave the Darth Vader line. And the right and the and the right, another is where right where there was some kind of 
deliberately induced misunderstanding at the outset. Right? So chazru is when you alter the terms of the deal, and hitu is when you uh, hitu is when you um, the misunderstanding, a deliberate misunderstanding, is built in at the at the outset. So the Bavli the Bavli opens by saying that hitu can't mean chazru. So we need to construct a case of hitu, and then in the end, it, in the end, it reje- it takes that back. So the Bavli, so in the end, the Bavli has both options: hitu can mean hitu, hitu can mean chazru. But the Bavli appears to say. That if you that if you say that hit, that um, hitu doesn't mean chazru, then the only way you can explain it is by saying that um, that zeh refers to a relationship among the poalim themselves. Right? Hitu is, right, even though it says hasokhet an opening of hitu zeh so we say zeh relates to the umanim and not to the relationship in the socher and the umanim. Right, and that right that that's if you right if you say it means if you say it means chazru, so then sure it means right it means that they that they, they each go back in the contract. If you say it means hitu, you have to, right it has to be the workers among each other. And the problem was that that really is um, hard to right hard to fit in because uh, the only way the Bible it seems the only way the Bible could do it um, was by um, introducing a third party. Who's halfway in between, the poel who is also an agent of the balabites, and that had all sorts of difficulties with it. One difficulty with it is, hang on a sec, nobody mentioned anything about a middleman, right? Old uman is a generic term. Two is, the the Bible does not appear ever to come with a case where it goes both ways. It's only a case; right? it's, it's always the agent tricking the other workers, but zed zed means each other. Right, so we can say it means that they tricked one, one tricked the others, right? But now we have to make a sokhar to umne vihitu zed zed. So we have to say vihitu relates only to the manim. And we have to say zed zed relates to a one-way thing as opposed to a two-way thing. So I tried to argue that those two things demonstrate that the Bavli doesn't really think this is shot in the Mishnah at all. Right, the Bavli is really engaged in a hypothetical discussion of the concept of taromet in labor relations. Because the Bavli knows that the real shot is that Hitu really does mean Chazru. And the proof of that is that there's a there's a bright and Tosefta which, which the bright which which the Bavli quotes at the end, which says, look, Hitu Zed Zed really means Chazru, and that's the, the final look into the Bavli. Right? So I wanted to argue that that right that I wanted to understand the Bavli at the outset as having no textual commitments at all in terms of the Mishnah, because in terms of what the Mishnah means, the Mishnah means and the purpose of the sugya is to construct various cases of hitu where there is nonetheless a taromet. Right? And I think I made a reasonable case. Right? That the way the, the sugya was structured, it left out the brighta, uh, which, which seems to prove that hitu means chazru until the very end. Uh, right? right? That it, seemed, it seemed like a plausible way. But the problem is, right, what would happen if the Yushalmi said that Hitu doesn't mean Chazru. So then it can't be quite right. Then you can't say the Bavli is right, playing a game when it knows what the real shot is. Right? When Yerushalmi didn't write, Yerushalmi reached the conclusion it really does mean Chazru. And furthermore, what happens if the Bavli said, right, the Bavli said that if we say Hitu doesn't mean Chazru, then we have to introduce a middleman. What happens if the Yerushalmi doesn't think that's true at all? What if the Yerushalmi said that Hitu that Hitu doesn't, Hitu doesn't mean Chazru, and we don't need a middleman. 
And if the Bali was aware of that, that means the Bali is making a very conscious choice, right? It's rejecting that possibility. Why is it rejecting that possibility? Okay, right, so that's where, I, that's where I want to bring us when we right, get into the Rishami. Is, right, is, 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 is saying maybe I have to reassess my whole claim about the structure of the sugya in light, right, in light of the Yerushalmi, if the Yerushalmi really says these things. Okay, and even if I don't think the Yerushalmi says these things, right, what I want to show is that there are Rishonim who understood, this, who understood the sugya this way, that the Yerushalmi said certain things about the Bavli, and the Bavli consciously chose to reject them, and the reason the Bavli chose to reject them is because it thought that they led to wrong halachic conclusions. Right, that's right, a model of that kind of argument. Right, the Rishonim are arguing right, that let's look at the Bavli. The Bavli's Archimedean point is that the Rishonim can't be right. And because the Rishonim can't be right, therefore the Bavli comes up with an alternate reading of the text. And we know that the Rishonim believes the Bavli can't be right because the Rishonim's reading of the text is better. And the Rishonim, and the Bavli, the Bavli resorts to a forced reading of the Mishnah because the alternative would be a halakha that it can't, that it doesn't find plausible. Okay, right. That's the that's the overall structure of the argument I'm trying I'm trying to set up. Now, the counter they're trying to say is that for that for um, for achronim, I guess I'm going to say this is a very general claim, which is then going to break down in lots of ways. But let's set it up as a as a a starting point. For achronim, often what happens is they they start off in their heads this way, at least pre 20th century achronim. We know, because of that riff, we paskin, that it is a machloga bavli in Yerushalmi, therefore we're going to paskin like the bavli. Therefore, the stakes in what the Yerushalmi means are not high. Because there are two possibilities. Either the bavli, Yerushalmi means what the bavli means. Okay, great. Or the Yerushalmi doesn't mean what the bavli means, in which case we don't paskin like it. So, right, so the, the Akronim have less of a stake in, right, in understanding the Yerushalmi in its own terms. Right, it's not live halakha for them often. And so again, this changes in the 20th century with, when, when the state of Israel happens and all of a sudden, all of a sudden Zrayim become, right, becomes a halakha and the only thing there is is Yerushalmi. So Yerushalmi is revived as halakhic source. And when you're retaking Yerushalmi as a source in, in Zrayim, it's going to be a lot more, a lot harder to just dismiss it in the Zik. And you can do it by saying, okay, well, that's because in Zrayim there is no Bavli, and, right, and, 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 in, and in the Zik and there is Bavli. So where there is Bavli, we passing like the Bavli, where there isn't Bavli, we passing like the Yerushalmi. It's a very coherent argument, but it's hard to do. Right, to read a text and say, oh, no, this is not Lahaka, but that one is Lahaka. Right, that's, uh, right, that's a difficult thing to do. Um, so, so um, and the other thing is funny, right, is that Ashronim are, Rishonim, some Rishonim probably have a live tradition of Yerushalmi. But by the time we get to the Akronim, most Akronim have like a three, four hundred year gap between the time they're writing and the last time somebody learned Yerushalmi Kaseda. Now, people just didn't learn Yerushalmi, right? Again, many Rishonim don't have Yerushalmi, right? They have digests. So by the time you get to Akronim, there's, there's a gap. And so, the, really, the only resource they have for constructing the Yerushalmi is the Bavli. And so, they will often, right, they will often just read the Bavli into the Yerushalmi even while denying that they were doing so, and often their introductions explain why, as I said, their introductions are about how everybody else blew it, like reading the Bavli, re- reading the Bavli in light of the, the Yerushalmi in light of the Bavli, but they're not doing that. Uh, now, we have you know, certain advantages nowadays in that we, we, have, right, we have, some of us have 
access to a broader range of resources about the Yerushalmi. Some Akronim did, but um, but some uh, standard Parshanim are often um, are often basically re- reduced to reading the um, reading the Bavli like the um, reading Yerushalmi like the Bavli. And there, there, there's a Rav Shlomo Surleo, who's a, a um, one of the I think one of the Grushei Svarat has a parish on Masechet Shkalim, uh, which is Shkalim is a particular problem because the print edition we have is probably there probably were two different traditions in Shkalim that got combined into the manuscript we have, which is a problem um, because somebody may have rewritten it to make it because they had like the equivalent of the Afyomi cycle. Shkalim is the only Masechet in Bavli without a without 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 a the only Masechet in uh, Moi without a Bavli. And there's a Yerushalmi, so somebody made a, you know, found the Yerushalmi and added it to it a little bit, maybe. Um, but Rosh Surleo has this like gorgeous, gorgeous parish on this gorgeous, gorgeous Mizrachet Shkalim, because he just rewrote it to look like a Bavli, completely. It's like the coolest thing in the world. Right? Um, <laughs> but it's just hard to believe that's really what Yerushalmi said, because he like he literally rewrote all the language, uh, all the terminology is the same. Okay, so with that, uh, the question. So that the right. So we have. The, like, the question that fundamentally interests me at the outset is, does the Yerushalmi really um, have, that posi- right, have that position, which is a, a position which says that, um, that Hitu uh, doesn't mean Chazru, and also that Hitu is a direct relationship between the employer and the employee? So, so, yeah. so the, reason why, the reason why it's important for the Yerushalmi, according to your argument, to say that Hitu doesn't mean Khazru is because the Bavli concludes that Hitu does mean Khazru. The Bavli, well, I mentioned like when the Bavli, sa- the Bavli says, to, right, make, makes the claim that if Hitu doesn't mean Khazru, then you have to introduce the middleman. Okay. Right, so my question is, like, what if, did they know that there was another possibility and are they rejecting that? Right, also, right, if you're right, saying that, you know, that the question is, how we, does the Sugya build to the climax? Oh, Hitu must not mean, right? Hitu really does mean Chazru, and everything else was just, you know, fun, or, right, or not, right? Those are the two, those are the two. St- I, I give you one way in which the, in which it might matter, right? If I, I could make a claim, right, which would matter a, a lot in terms of a priority thing. I might claim that the reason somebody would reject the notion, that, uh, right, reject that position uh, out of hand, that you can't be that, um, that it's, that Hitu, Relates to a relationship to directly between employers and employees, and the outcome is uh, the outcome is taromet. The reason they reject it, even though they acknowledge that it is a more textually plausible reading, is because they're not willing to accept the possibility that there is a case where an employer does something to an employee, which is unjust, and the employee can't collect. Right, that would be one way right, of framing this like as a moral statement. How could you play? How could you possibly claim that there, right, that there's that there's a situation where, right, where this happened and the employee is stuck? Now you can say, but right, Clapper, that's a strong bias. Why you just say it's the other way around? There can't be a thing with the employer, right? With the employee, decide, right? That's perfectly true, right? So you know, so you have to figure out, uh, right? So you have to, right, So one of the the underlying things I can talk about is, you know, is it legitimate to have as a um, as an Archimedean point for me that the Torah has a bias towards employees? Right, is that right? Is that a is that a fair point to start off with? Like that, that the primary concern in employment employee law is to make sure that employees get their fair share, and then we have to balance. Right? So I'll give you a mashal for this also. Right, a way of um, there is a rule against showing bias towards the poor in court cases. This will come up for us at, at the end of the parish. 
right? Vidal lo sedar brivo. Why is there a rule against showing bias to the poor and to the poor in court cases? So one way of understanding it is, there's a rule because we are about justice. Justice, law, rules, everything like that. That's what we care about. And so what matters most to us is that the outcome of a the outcome of a case between a person with lots of resources and a person with poor resources is that everyone gets exactly what they deserve. Right? That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that saying no, that the we recognize that the only chance of approaching of anything resembling justice is if the rich trust the courts. If the rich don't believe that the system is that way, then they'll buy it. Or they'll set up a private system. So the whole right, so the whole purpose of banning judges from favoring the poor is in order to preserve their authority to prevent the rich from right, the rich from abusing them. And it's not really that we start off with an, with, with an egalitarian assumption. It's that we reach a pragmatic, pragmatically, right? We recognize that the existence of law is the only thing that prevents the rich from dominating the poor. And so we demand that you preserve that for the sake of the poor. And you can see how that will be have not given us, right? What happens if what, right, what happens if you get a situation where the form of the law is perfectly preserved, but the res- the outcomes are you know, right, are right, are right, perpetuate for better like systemic injustice? So you say, who cares? Well, the system is right, right. The system works objectively, or do you say no? Right, the purpose of this objective system is to enable the poor to have justice, and now you're failing. You're failing. Right, let's suppose we have a perfect system. The only thing is that in this perfect system, uh, each side is entitled to. Right, there's no limit on on how much you can spend on legal fees. So you create a system where uh, it's not just that, right. In order to have a fair chance, you have to have enough money to pay lawyers, and you can't. So the rich always win. But the system is made by objective decisions made by objective lawyers. We're going to persist in the illusion that judges make their decisions based on their own decisions, and lawyers have no impact on them. Right? This is a very live situ- situation of Bacon. Right? Do you, right? What What do you do in situations where right, where one side can afford a I, right, a great towing and one side can't, which is right. So if you're one of the Gadoliador and your towing is not going right, it's not going to change anything. And you have a year ago who also has 25 hours to spend on every case, right? Then that's great. But if you're not, you know, if you know that you're not a great bucky and you don't have 25 hours to spend on a case, so you know that the easy thing is to take the brief written by the great Talmud Chacham. So what do you do then? Right? Do you allow that or not? So this is the case that that many of the Badi Din in Israel are trying to deal with. Um, right, right, is, is right that that they're that they recognize that a, that, that a formal Bayesian system is subject to the same distortions as the American system. Now it has its own distortions. That's our own issue, right? But right, but that's, but but in the internal understanding, Sir Usher Weiss right has a has a very nice uh, has a very nice discussion about what what the role of Tonian can and can't be in Bayesian. And Kedarko Bakodesh, he's very honest. He says, you know what? Sometimes people write me briefs, and I say, wow, I could never have done that on my own. Or it would have taken me months and months, right? And on the other hand, that, that's not fair. One side has that not. And how do I balance that, right? See, right, Professor Weiss, Kedarka Bakodish, right, has the uh, has a beautifully honest and and uh, sophisticated understanding of what is happening in his uh, in his Bayesian system. Okay, right. That's just one way in which we could right we could raise the stakes dramatically for what's going right for what's going on between the Babylon between the Babylon and the Yerushalmi. Okay, so now turning to the right to the uh, to the text themselves. Um, so we saw last week, right? We we saw the um, two, two interpretations. Um, I think is what we, we got through was two interpretations of the uh, of the Rishalmi. 
And what I wanted to show was the way in which they were um, built structurally, that the issues that we have, the Yerushalmi, the way we have it, right, this is on page one of the Makar, right? the Yerushalmi, the way we have it, is a system which is structured in, right, it's, it's two by two, right, there are four cases, and the four cases are, the four cases are, under, are under two headings, um, and the, que the issue is, where do the two headings, wh where do the two headings come from? And then each head, right, each of the two headings, right, so the first line, Hit'an Zed Zeh, sounds like it comes from the Mishnah. The second line, Hit'an Balabayas, doesn't come from the Mishnah. Right, so why do we have two headings, right, one from the Mishnah and one not? The second thing is that we have two cases under each, we have two cases under each of them. So are they, um, are they supposed to be cases which are inverse of each other? Right, right, that, right, each of them has a column where X beats Y and what, right, and then, right, X fools y and then y fools x or are they cases in which we say no there's here are, here are, right all we flip is a number and here are two ways in which x can fool y here are two right right here are two ways in which in which, in which y can fool x uh, right and we have all right so you can you can put all the variables you want uh into right into uh, those into those cases uh, but we pointed out that the rishonim did not right now that's what we showed the ritva did not have four cases rishonim only had two cases and Rishonim didn't have a heading, so far as we know. So the way in which the Bavli is structured, the way the Pnei Moshe reads it, right, which is our, our, our standard parish, the Pnei Moshe is reading a text which has, which has this structure, right, two headings, and two, two headings and two cases under each heading, but the Ritva has a, has a Gemara with no headings and just two cases. Right, that's aside from the, right, then in addition to that, we raise the question, right, that they're, that it's not clear what the relationship between the words ruban and yoman uh, means in the text. Um, and therefore, based on that, you can either construct the case, cases involving Paulian or cases involving Kabbalanim, which we saw is already dispute, a dispute as well. Um, I should also point out that uh, Deborah, who is um, happily serving as a moral check on, on me, uh, as she's supposed to, uh, points out that, um, that some of the things that go on here are illegal now. Uh, like it might be like asking for salary history, which is the way in which the Yerushalmi's case seems to be structured. Um, what do you usually work for? Uh, is illegal in Massachusetts now, uh, right? So we should point that out. Maybe that right. And then there's a whole debate about what, what, whether that is. I should point out. I got a story. There is, there is a there is a claim which is highly debated about whether um, whether requiring people to put salary ranges on the job um, on the advertisement prevents discrimination on racial or especially gender grounds. Um, the current claim is that uh, asking for salary history perpetuates past discrimination, and that's why we want to ban it. And there's a first study from BU showing that, that it actually helps. We'll see if that's really true, if that kind of study holds up or not. It's a very narrow study, which they claim is a single employment basin uh, crossing the Massachusetts or Island border, but Massachusetts has, has the rule and Rhode Island doesn't, so they're, trying, they're, so they're claiming they can compare things within that. In any case, so Deborah pointed out I shouldn't have just uh, said that without noticing the contemporary things. Okay, so I, what I showed you last time was the way the um, right, that was that was uh, the way the the, the ritva that's page one only has two cases as opposed to our which has four. I showed you the Pnei Moshe uh, who has uh, right, who has four cases and interprets them all. But the Pnei Moshe read what the Pnei Moshe does is he reads in the middleman. Even though the right the, Yerusha, right, the Yerushalmi doesn't say anything about the middleman, but the Pnei Moshe reads in. The Moshe reads in the middle there. Um, so the Moshe ends up uh, ends up saying, 
put down my notes. Um, that right, you 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 ends up saying that there's the case of the Mishnah, which is really um, a case of of Chazru, and right, and then there's and then there's the the Hitu Malabayis, which is really a case of Hitu. It gets to be it gets to be quite a mess. Um, so we have two other. Um, Sorry, you, you, so yeah. you've said a couple of times that the Yerushalmi doesn't have the middleman, right? But isn't aren't the Yerushalmi's first two cases? It's not. They don't have the Balabayat explicitly hi- hiring the middleman, but it is a case of Zed Zev between the polling. Yes, but they don't right, but they don't frame it as the as the owner instructing the middleman necessarily. Not necessarily frame it that way. Well, yeah. What's the point of the middleman? Oh, what's, I'm sorry. What's the point of it? Of the interaction between the Pauline. Uh, so that is a. Is, so is one of them just independently motivated to, to serve what he sees as the interests of the Um It's not clear what, what, what drives the Pauline, right? That may be, right? Maybe, so maybe that's what you think is really pshat in the end, right? It's not clear what drives the Pauline. They just want this person to work with them. Why? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right, but but Rishama doesn't mention the gap, right? The Bible builds everything around the gap between what the employer is prepared to pay and what the middleman says, and Rishama doesn't have that explicitly. But the Pinochet tries to read it in. Okay, so let's take a look at the um, let's take a look at the rush, but let's, let's take a look at that, right? Because uh, we can look at the Ribas's chat also, but I don't think it changes. Um, it change, right? all, all all I'm trying to do with that is just show you how you know how, how everybody has to has to find a way to deal with the structure, and everybody and everybody's solutions. You're gonna have a certain amount of um, a certain amount of stretch in it because right because you you want a perfectly balanced you know, the, the ideal structure is one right where where every where every every there's symmetry all the way through right the two right there's there's two cases each of those two cases flip on the same axis and right and and right and they're all the same and nobody really has mad, has succeeded in coming up with a um, with a shot like that I guess I will tell you right yeah but if, if I had to guess. Uh, but I have not yet found somebody who says it explicit, but I'm sure I will, that um, it's a mistake to believe that the first line, that when we look at the two, the, two cat, the two headings, it's a mistake to believe the first one is from a Mishnah. They're actually both from the Tosefta, and the Tosefta has both lines. So if you just, right, so if you just take the Yerushalmi as being a parish on the Tosefta, as opposed to being a parish on the Mishnah, then a lot of the symmetry problems will disappear. Uh, okay, but that's, really, that's, my, that's, my, that's my bias. Um, Is that your Archimedean? Yeah, I, I, it's a bias. It's not, a, it's not, it's not my Archimedean point. Right? You'll, you'll see, you know, I'm, you know, we're, we're, I, I, I'm clear, right? You know, I, I, I told you over and over again, like, my point is going to be that, there, that the, that the, um, that the halakha has an awareness of the power imbalance, mm-hmm. and, um, and has a, you know, as we saw when, I, when, I, when, I, when, I, when we read the Bavli, right? So I made a big deal. It's one of my favorite parts of the Bavli, uh, where the Bavli says that the Torah is from getting you to work for somebody else as opposed to working for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I point out that Rashi may not read it the same way, because I'm trying to be honest, but for me, right, you know, that, that's a really big thing. The Bavli understands that there is a fu- an inherent loss of dignity in being an employee as opposed to, an em- as opposed to being self-employed. Mm-hmm. And that notion that the employment relationship inherently involves a, a dignity loss for the employee, that's, you know, that's probably my recommendation point. 
as uh, my bosses have uh, found out, you know, through this make off it. We'll talk about that much more, <laughs> much more in uh, in a week or two when we get to the to the other sugi that's like really the the core of what it is. But you know, again, you know, I have biases. Some of those biases are experiential. Uh, in that case, right, this we'll we'll get to right. That there's one sugi in the Baal that I love teaching, and so when you you have a chiddush, you get attached to it. Uh, right, as I wrote to uh, an Israeli rabbi this week, you know, I, I sent him a chiddush reminder that I care about a lot, uh, and uh, he didn't agree. And I said, well, you know, it's disappointing. That's what you're supposed to see, you know, and, and it's fair. I'm a human being. You know, I have a chiddush. I like it. I want, uh, but you know, but I'm not upset with you. Uh, you know, you know, just so you know, you don't agree yet. I'm sure eventually he'll come around to it. But I think it's true, right? You know, when I think it's true, someone else said it to me. I don't know, but uh, but you know, it was so beautiful to me, so clear to me. No way it can't be true. It's true, obviously. <laughs> we'll see. I'll give you a share to my uh, to my alums this Sunday, and we'll see if they uh, we'll see how they we'll see how they buy it. So it was interesting. I had a second tradition, and I thought, like, if you don't like the first one, you're not gonna like the second one. The second one, you said, yeah, that's really good. <laughs> so who knows? Okay, so let's take a look at the Rashba. We're on page we're on page four. So the Rashba said the Rashba is a parish on the on the Bavli, but he begins by um, by quoting the Rishon. Okay, and he begins by quoting the Rabbit. Uh, okay, this is the same rabbit as the rabbit who wrote the uh, who, wrote, who wrote the Hasagos on the Rambam, um, but um, the rabbit also wrote a parish on Shas. Dr. Soloveitchik's one of Dr. Soloveitchik's big thesis is that the Rashba was better known as a uh, as a commentary, and the the Hasagos on the, Ram- on the Rambam, which is what he's known for now, were just things he tossed off at night, like readings for the book. But what happened is that the halachic culture that the rabbit belonged to, Provence. Uh, was wiped out by the Tosafist revolution. And so all the Raivids' perushim were lost. So we have this image of the Raivid as this cantankerous, you know, you know sharp, tart, tart-tongued figure who writes perushim on the Bavli, but really he was the great... And his, his Raivid is that the refers to the Raivid as a Gedolei HaMaforshim, uh, not Gedolei HaMasigin, at least most of the time. Uh, anyway, so the, we, ha- we now have the Raivid on, um, on Babakama and Avodazara, and they're, like, they're, they're, like, they're, they change everything. Like all you know, options you never thought of, right? You, all of a sudden you realize, all right, and the same thing, you can see like other Bishonim, Tosfos, Rashi, right, right, all you're saying, oh, they, they were choosing not to say this. And there, was another, there was another culture and they were rejecting this. You didn't understand it before you have them. Hopefully someday we'll find the rest of the writer. Okay, but as we have the rest of the writers we just have preserved by what other people had of him because right, they were common, they had, they had common students, so Kazva Ravid. The Loam Rusha, Polam Hitu, Balabais, and Balabais Hit Autam. Kinyan. Right, so they don't claim, right, that they that when they say hitu means itu apol maladari. So it says it doesn't mean that there's a direct uh, that there's a direct hataya between the polem and the balabayas, and that you have to introduce the middleman, right? Uvishalmi hachim mefarishlo. He says this is what the Yerushalmi says. Balabayas hitautam shamar lahem tavo imi kederach shabo chaverchem. So what is Right, the Balabayas does, the Rishonli says the Balabayas does directly trick them. And he's and he's because he says to them, Come come to me the way your friends came. Amru the Kamabo. So they said, Well, how much did how much did they come for? Amru the Khamisha Khamisha Rubam. He said, So, you know, five 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 and five, there's whatever for whatever time piece, whatever it is, most of them, nobody's adequately explained to me what the word Rubam is doing here all the time. <laughs> uh right, why why isn't there just a standard share? And it turns out in the end. That there were um, right that that there were ten. The chain de poel em shitu at a balabayas al derech zeh. Okay, so the rabbi says the rabbi says actually the pshat in 
the Mishnah, the way the Yerushalmi learned it, is exactly that. Right? It's direct. It's it's hataya. It's right. It's not chazru. It's hataya, and it's directly between the pole and balabayis. And the issue is, right? Or do right, the balabayis either the the balabayis tricks them by claiming that the workers um, that the workers um, are paid. The previous workers agreed to a lower salary, or the pole trick him by claiming that right, claiming they normally get paid a higher salary. Yeah. Is that second case in the Yerushalmi that we know? In the Yerushalmi that we have, and you, know, you have to change the pronouns. <laughs> right? That's basically right. You have to change the pronouns. Right? Well, we have, right, up to enough, doing, well, we, don't, we don't even know which of our four cases he's doing, right? It's very hard, very hard to so know. None of the other three cases, the first case matches to the top left. Yeah. Right? But. The second case doesn't match to any of the other three cases. Okay, so let's change the pronouns. We don't know. <laughs> right, we, you know, we, saw, we, saw, we, have every, you know, we did the Rebaz in depth. You'll see the Rebaz changes the pronouns in every single one of them. Uh, right, that's why, as you can tell from me, like, the text of the Rishalmi is not an Archimedean point for me. Right, at least here, right, I think you can show that, uh, right, you know, when I, I talked about my old Sherman, the Rishalmi is still, like, you could show, like, you know, like every, every single word was amended in opposite directions. Uh, very hard to know. So, uh, For me right now, what I'm interested mostly is in how the Rashba understood it. And then I could ask the question, can I just draw out all the Akronim because all the Akronim are dealing with a text that the Rishon didn't have. And I'm just not convinced that it's real. Right, that, that's the... Uh, okay. The, right, so that's what the, 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 writer, the, the writer says. And the Rashba makes a fascinating comment. The Nish'arlo zal ha'inyan megumgum. And he left everything a mess. What? <laughs> like what? What does it mean? He has a perfectly reasonable shot. Right? It looks, it looks to us like right that, that that is the simple shot. Well, that's the simple concept, right? Yeah. Maybe what he's saying is along the lines of what Arya is asking about. Like, it doesn't work in the in the language. In, well, in the shot, you're saying you have to flip the. Well, we have to because we have a text. But his, in his text, why don't we assume that's exactly what well, the text says? Yeah. Yeah. And right, the, the Rashba doesn't say anything about the about the text being a mess. Right, the initial he and the gumgum. Uh -huh. Right. The, the right the halacha was a mess. Uh -huh. Right. Uh, where, why is why is that? That's like a wild thing. So it could be because we know from the Bible that that can't be that obvious. Right. You have to talk about right what the what the workers said. Right. What the what the person who said to says in response is he relying on their thoughts? Is he relying on his own thoughts? Right. What's the shar? Right. What are the, what were their alternatives? Right. It was just too too simple. Could be, but it's just an amazing line, right? He just quotes a perfectly reasonable shot, and he says, "The Nishar Lodi and the Gumgo." Okay, now I watch what the Rashi says. Says, "Vani Tama Imhadin Emet Uleish Amroharav," and I would, I wonder, if he didn't say this, I would think that the outcome of this is not halachically true. Now, again, he's a Rishon; he's not so happy saying that. Um, okay, so it's not true. So what? We just understand the Rishalmi, and it's wrong. But he assumes that the Ravid said this, and again, he has access to the Ravid and we don't. Right? So you have to assume that the Ravid ends up claiming that the Bavli means what the Yerushalmi does, or at least the Bavli works out, that the Yerushalmi tells us what the Halacha is, and the Bavli agrees with it. And he thinks it's a mess, and he thinks that the specific Halacha of the Ravid, that he wonders if it's true, if the Ravid hadn't said it, he's very respectful. Because since they have tricked each other, and 
right? Since it was framed to them as, right? Either way, right? Whoever, whoever, whoever mentions the amount says, this is what most people get. Right? Says, I don't understand. There's, right? The way, the way the rabbi sets up the halacha, there's no contract. Wait, con- the, con- the verbal contract is invalid because... Because there's no meaning of minds. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a fraud. So how could, the, how could the halacha end up being right, that we enforce the contract mm-hmm. when there was no contract? Right? So he thinks the rabbi's outcome is impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, right? The... Uh, I can understand why the workers only end up with the Torah. Why? Um, right. So right, even though they only agreed to work because they believed that the work that the that the shara of wages had decreased. Masha, who cares? Either way, if they actually agreed, they freely agreed to a contract. So, right, so okay. I understand why they'd only get a Taromet. Vim love and it's battle tonight's Hiratam. But if you say that, that, that if you say that they nef, they never really agreed, there was no real contract. So then there's no contract. So then they're people who work without a contract. So then they should just get the lowest end of the wage scale. Okay, now there are lots of assumptions. We pointed out that there are other ways to calculate that could get the, the median of the, of the wage scale, which we saw in the Rambam. Mm-hmm. Right, but the, the Rashford does not seem to have my pro-labor biases. <laughs> right, he's not her, her, right? So the workers, okay, I understand the workers only end up with the Torah, because either there's a contract and the Bavli says, and he thinks that the Bavli is right, right? right? The Bavli says that as long as there's a freely agreed contract, there can't be more than Torah, or else they're going to get whatever, right, the lower end of the wage scale. So what's the big deal? Aval, he says, but... Um, so skip his riot from the Gemara. How can the Balabayas be forced to right, be forced to pay them what he agreed and only have a Tarahmet against them? That's not fair to the Balabayas. Right, why, right? Uh, we could have said, what do you mean? No, right, you know, so... When, yeah? I mean, it seems like why... He seems to have really... A, a bias against work. <laughs> yeah, if workers agree to do the work for that, then they freely agree to it. If the if the if the balabai ultimately say, well, I, I thought the market was only three. If it's four, it's still worth it to me. So I'm going to pay you to do it. Yeah. Really right. His Archimedean point is that he, he, he's not convinced that there's a Kabbalah here. So that's what he's saying. For the Polum case, either way, they end up with the same price. If there's Kabbalah, then you get that price. There's no Kabbalah. That's the market wage. But for the this other case, that doesn't work out because the two sides come to a different number. Right, but let's put it, A, he, he assumes that he knows what the market wage is. Right. Now, we saw in the Bavli, right, that the, the Bavli, when the Bavli leaves out what the market wage is, that turns into a machlokus. We're showing him what the market wage is. Is it higher or below or the agreement? And secondly, he assumes that whenever there's no contract, the Paulum get the bottom of the market, which is what the Bavli says. Mm-hmm. But who says the Rishonim says this? Okay, in the end, the Rashba says exactly what we want, right? That's right, he says, Valkain nearly, last line, the Rashba says in the end, okay, maybe the Bavli is chat, the, the Raven is chat in the, in the Yerushalmi, and that's great because that means the Bavli rejected it on purpose. 
And my assumptions about what the halacha is are even truer. Okay, right. So, right, so you get to see there. You get to see that methodology work uh, work for me. You don't have to know what his commitments are. Right? His commitments are that the bot, right, he can't think past the Bobley's right. Bobley's claim that you get the bottom of the market, right? And, right, uh, right, and that's fair. That's right. And once you do that, then life is great. Uh, okay, I, I am not so convinced that that is ob that's obvious. Um, so, um, right. So we'll we'll start by next time. We'll see that the Shittas Agbeta quotes the Rabbi Shmuel Davidish. Who quotes, right, who quotes who quotes the Ravid somewhat differently, and um, right, it ends up it ends up in a different place. And then we'll read one, another uh, 20th century effort to put the sugya together. Uh, I think that's probably that's probably a fair thing to do next time. And I guess the at the end of next time, the week after that, we'll get to the next halacha uh, in which I claim will support you know all my biases. Uh, but we'll have to see. At least you know, some people will support some of my biases. Okay. Thank you very much. Great to be back live.